presence. We love you. Amen. Okay, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Last week, we did the first part of this message, and I had another hour's worth of material. So we are we now divided into two. And as I was looking over it this week, we might divide this into three. So uh, verses 1 through 8. This is part two. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So just by way of reminder, uh, Paul is addressing something, or, or he's urging them towards holiness. And we have a culture right now uh, in the world that, that wants to either say, that you are holy in order to earn salvation. They, they want to say you work and you're working to be holy in order to earn salvation or that salvation has been given to you and therefore you don't have to pursue holiness. And I want you to understand that both of those are abhorrent. Both of those are gross misrepresentations of what the scripture says. You don't earn your salvation. You're not holy in order to earn something. And... Just because you've been made holy or sanctified in Jesus Christ through the work of Jesus Christ does not mean that there's nothing for you to pursue. <clears throat> it is one of the most ridiculous collections when people gather together to rejoice in their own wickedness and say things like, I don't have to work for holiness or I don't have to do anything because Jesus has already done it. That's true. You don't have to do anything because Jesus has already done it. And yet still, how many times in Scripture are we urged to pursue holiness? How many times? is it, It's direct. Be holy as I am holy is the rally cry for God's people. He makes us holy and then we behave in such a way as those who have been made holy. So let's recap just a little bit here. In verse 1, uh, we saw that the aim... Here is that you would please God. Remember what it says here. It says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that just as you received from us, and then we've got that article there that designates this as a subject. So there's an article in this passage that actually designates this as a subject matter. And the subject matter is right here. It says uh, that this is what you received from us the, so you can imagine the, this setting this off, 
the how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, do so more and more. So the, the subject matter of what Paul has taught them, what Paul and Silas and Timothy have taught them and labored over is how to walk and pleasing God. Those two things together. How to walk. Now the word walk in the New Testament is the word uh, that means continuous action. And it is a general, the good way to think about it is that it is a general practice of life. It's not every single moment, but rather all the moments collected and added together. It is a general pattern of life. Walk is this uh, term that is used to describe in general where you're going. So you walk in the spirit or you walk by the flesh. There is not a going back and forth. You walk by the spirit. You have life and godliness. The spirit leads you. There is no more condemnation. You walk by the flesh. You have sin and death. And that the person who lives by the flesh will die by the flesh. The person who walks by the flesh cannot please God. And yet you are taught the walking and the pleasing of God. This is the subject that Paul says he taught them. The walking and the pleasing of God. Christians have one joy, one overarching joy above all others. Pleasing the Lord. One overarching joy to please God. All humanity actually shares this this joy. Honestly, we were created to please and rejoice in God. And I'm going to get a little bit philosophical just for a moment. If God is the greatest, if he is truly the greatest being, in fact, I would argue the only being, the only one who is uh, undefined and consistent and stative in his, in his being, everything else is a becoming, everything else is a changing Matter, But God himself is the only one who is perfectly stable. And if he is the only being, he is the greatest being, then we need to understand something that there is nothing greater than him. There is nothing that can be greater than him. And for him to put anything above himself would cause him to cease to be the greatest because he's the assigner of greatest. And if he ceased to be the greatest, then he would cease to be God. And and that is not a possibility. So God is the greatest thing. So if God is the greatest thing to be imagined, he is the greatest thing above all others, then he is the only thing worthy of worship and praise. And, And get this, if he's the only thing worthy of worship and praise, he's the greatest thing Ever and worship and praise is the reaction to uh, to what brings joy. Then he is also the supreme source of joy. He is the, the supreme source of joy. So philosophically, ideologically, theologically, whatever ology you want to grab hold of here, the concept of God. And the scriptural God, God, Jehovah, the Lord, God Almighty, Him, the the concept of Him is the source of joy. So to please Him is to seek joy. 
The pleasing of God is to seek joy. Now, all of humanity longs for this kind of joy. It's written inside us. And yet, all of humanity has spurned that joy and said, metaphorically, with fists raised to God, I will find joy in something else. You are not the greatest. And all of humanity has turned its back on that reality of God being the greatest good and has said, I'm going to find joy in myself. And they've placed, all all of us, everybody has placed themselves above God. And we see it from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 when God sees things? He speaks things into existence and he sees that they are good. So God, by his word and by his eyes, says that things are good. In Genesis chapter 3, what does Eve do when she sees the fruit? She sees that it is pleasing to the eyes and good for the mouth. And she takes and eats and then hands to her husband and he takes and eats. This is exactly what humanity has done. They've said God's place was to determine what is good and great. It's God's place to do that. And humanity has looked at God and said, I don't need you to do that. I'm going to do that for myself. I'm going to determine what's good. I'm going to see what's good. I'm going to say it's good. And it's going to be good. And it never goes well. Thank the Lord it never goes well. Thank God that our sinful disposition as humans to reject God as God and to reject him as the supreme good doesn't go well for us because if it went well for us, we'd be in trouble. But instead, what happens? They see something that's good, they say it's good, and everything goes off the rails. Right? And we see this all through the Old Testament. The phrase is used all the all the time. Tove in the eyes is used all the time. In fact, if you want to see it, just look at the book of Judges and you'll see it over and over and over, this poetic phrase that she was good in his eyes. It was good in their eyes. Everyone did what was good in their own eyes. Now, um, you might have everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was good. But if you, if you use a Hebrew lexicon, Uh, or a uh, concordance and look up the word good in Hebrew, you'll see it good in their eyes, good in their eyes, good in their eyes. All throughout the Old Testament, anytime someone is, anytime something's about to go bad, man goes, it's good in my eyes. It's good in his eyes. All humanity longs for joy, and yet they have perverted where we get that joy from. We have perverted where we get that joy from. We get the joy from knowing God and walking close with him. If he is the only being, if he is the supreme being, and there's nothing greater than him, then nothing else can create joy. Thus, he is the source and author of all pleasure for us. And then, here Paul says that this you received from us, how you ought to walk and to please God, And then he says, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So this is something they've been doing. This is something, one, remember back in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. This is something that was done in them. 
God did the sanctifying. He did the saving. He did the justifying. He has made them holy. It's done in them. But this is also something they are doing. This is a beautiful truth about God. You are not a robot. You are not a robot in which he changes your programming and slides it in and makes you different. No, you are a unique individual who has been given special uh, work to do. Who's been given something of value to contribute to life. Life was given to you. Salvation was given to you. Sanctification was given to you. A new nature was given to you. And then you were told in Scripture, we were told in Scripture, to walk according to that new nature. So we are told to pursue holiness. And why? Because it pleases God. Because it pleases God. And that's the chief source of joy and life and everything. God, the delight the delight in knowing him, the ups and downs. We are to strive more and more for this. This is to strive more and more for this. So in what ways, just the basic application, application question for you, in what ways are you working to develop joy in your life? In what ways are you working to develop joy in your life? You will find that the more you discipline yourself to pursue Christ, to pursue knowing Him and loving Him, the more joy you will have. The more joy you will have. And I mean in every aspect. I mean in your reading and your entertainment, in your devotion, in your personal disciplines, in your work, in your loving of others. In the book Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about work and prayer or work and worship. And he, he explains that so many people on this earth, so many Christians who are godly Christians tend to think, man, if I could just worship all the time, if I could just worship all the time, pray all the time and worship all the time. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, you need to stop thinking like that. You need to recognize that there is a discipline of life that must be lived in which Worship and prayer is a segment of what you do. And work is a segment of what you do. And they aren't the same thing. They aren't the same thing. Yes, you can apply broadly the idea of worship as a lifestyle. You can apply that broadly. But specifically, prayer, reading your Bible, devotional time, singing songs... Those are a segment of your life. And they ought to be, Bonhoeffer argues, they ought to be a small segment. Look at the Old Testament and see what God designated. He designated one day for that. Six days for work. He said, you're supposed to work. You're supposed to work. And yet, even within the rhythms of your days, you ought to have a moment during the day that is designated for prayer worship, study of the word. And it doesn't have to be long. It just has to be fruitful. It just has to be real. And then you've got work that comes and and you're supposed to be tired after work. I love counseling with young couples when the man comes and goes, I'm tired after work and I'm 
and I need to, and I'm like, yeah, you're supposed to be tired after working. That's how, that's how work, that's why it's called work. That's, that's why it's not called relaxation. Like it's, you're supposed to be tired at the end of the day. God gave you enough energy to make it through the day so you would delight in him at the end of the day in fruitful rest. You're supposed to be tired. It's supposed to be long. But there is supposed to be a designated time for prayer and for singing and for gathering with the saints. These are designated times that are disciplines. And they are short. Just consider the regular rhythms of the day. If you do a daily devotional, I don't know if you do or not. I do. It's good for you to do it. If you do a daily devotional, what we called quiet times growing up, right? Like... That's what church churches called it. Have a quiet time. Make sure you're reading your Bible. Make sure you're praying. Make sure you're studying. That discipline is really good. If you have that during the day, it shouldn't be your whole day. It should be a portion of your day. And then there's work. And the work is all coded in this living holy. Your work is holy in Jesus Christ. Your personal devotion is holy in Jesus Christ. Your prayer life is holy in Jesus Christ. All of this is working towards godliness, towards holiness. All of this is towards that. We strive more and more to please God. And you please God in holy work, in holy prayer, in holy singing, in holy devotions, in the effort and discipline. So we have here this phrase where we... Dropped off last week, verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave to you through the Lord Jesus. So just bounce back to verse 1 and you see, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. So they ask and urge with the power of Jesus in his name, kind of with his authority, calling you towards a holy life. And then in verse Two, it says, for we know the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So the first thing to recognize is the way to pursue holiness, sanctification, the way to pursue pleasure in God is to know Jesus. This is done through Jesus. Even in your work, even in your labor, this is all done through Jesus. We, we don't make ourselves holy. A great quote that I read this week was, holiness is not something we do in order to become, but it is something we do because we are. Holiness is not something we do in order to become, but it is something we do because we are. Through Jesus, we live a holy life. Through Jesus, because he has made us holy, and he has sanctified us, and he has made us righteous, Therefore, we can, and we do, all the more strive for holiness. And he says, we instructed you or exhorted you. The word here implies that there's a previously established truth, which we saw in chapter uh, 3, verse, 13 through, um, verse 11 through 13, where Jesus has done the work in you. Yeah. Because it pleases God. Because he has done this in you. He has made you blameless. He's made you holy and blameless. So he says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. 
Verse 3, for this is the will of God. Now, I just want you to dive in on that word will. This is the word where we get our name from, Thelma, right? Thelema is the word. And it's where we get our name, Thelma. So whenever you meet a woman named Thelma, she has a will. And, this, and it's not just a like, prescribed will or a forcing or bending somebody to his will. The, the New Testament Greek does not use the term will as in like bending someone to your will or a forced will. It uses the will differently. It uses the word will as in a deep desire for. A longing after. So when we think of the word will, we ought to think particularly related to pleasure or desire. And this makes sense because it's talking about how to please God. So how do you please God? Well, this is God's desire or pleasure or delight. This is his will. Now, the word thelema in the New Testament is used only twice to describe someone else's will. Only two times to describe man's will. The first time it's used to describe man's will, it's the apostles are using it to describe man's will towards God. The second time it's used to describe the flesh, the will of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. This word is contrasted with the other word for will, bolumai. I'm sure that somebody on the podcast will tell me that I just pronounced that awfully, awfully, and they'll uh, write me an email, but please don't. The <clears throat> purpose, this Bolomai emphasizes the purpose or counsel of will, but not the execution of it. The purpose or the counsel of that desire, but not the execution of it. Bolomai is often used to describe man's will or man's desire or dreams, the things that are that he longs for, right? This, uh, this word, in contrast, thelema, emphasizes the execution of that will, the accomplishment of that will. This is an active pursuit on God's part, for it is the will of God. It is his actively pursued desire. So just... In this word, I want you to grab hold of this. When you are striving for holiness, and it's hard. It's hard. Being righteous is hard and it's often lonely. It's hard and it's often lonely. That's why we crave church so much. Because we know that joy is found in the work of pleasing God. And yet, it's hard to do by yourself. And yet it's hard to do in groups. It's a difficult task. It's not easy. If it were easy, it wouldn't be worth your time. If it were easy, it wouldn't be worth your time. You wouldn't be urged to do it. So we see this idea. I want you to grab hold of this idea that the word for will, for it is the will of God, implies and indicates that he is actively pursuing this in you. You are not doing this by yourself. You are not pursuing holiness by yourself. Christ has placed his spirit in you. In Colossians chapter 3, we know that Christ has placed his spirit in you, and he is renewing you, present tense active, day by day, to make you more like him. 
that you would pursue him and delight in him. This is an active pursuit on God's part as you actively pursue the Lord. God works towards your present sanctification. I was careful with my words there because there's a group of people that like to talk about eternal sanctification, and that's fine. Go ahead and talk about that, but don't neglect the fact that you have present sanctification to be done. You can be holy as he is holy because he has made you holy. Therefore, live like you are as the children of God, pursuing him and holiness. Your holiness matters to God. This is the will of God. So this is the desire of God, your sanctification, your holiness. If you ever meet somebody, that claims to be a Christian, and they tell you that they don't have to be holy, this verse should pop into your brain immediately. This is the will of God, your holiness. And understanding the idea of will, that it's not just the plan, the thought, like, oh, God wants you to be holy. No, it's, it's the deep desire of God that he actively pursues. He wants you to be holy as he is holy. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 through 45, verse ni- chapter 19, verse 2, chapter 20, verse 26, and verse 7. All urge the people of God to be holy as he is holy. Written in the law of God was the statement of God, you are to be holy as I am holy. And that is right after Exodus 32, in which Moses comes down from the mountain and he's received the last part of the law. And that last part of the law, remember what it says, for six days you will work, on the seventh day you will rest. And he says, you will remember that I am Jehovah Makodesh Kim. I am the one who makes you righteous. I am the one who sanctifies you. I am the one who sanctifies you and makes you holy. For six days you will work, on the seventh you will rest and remember that I make you holy. That your work doesn't make you holy. I make you holy. And then he follows that up with a whole book of be holy. Live a holy life. Be holy. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, it is echoed again that you would be holy. You would be holy as he is holy. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, the people of God are told that You are to be holy and live a holy life so that others might see your holy life and rejoice in God. In John chapter 17, verses 17 through 19, Jesus prays that God would make his disciples holy and that they would live holy. They would live righteously. In Romans chapter 1, verse 7, you are called to be holy. In chapter 6, verse 19, you were redeemed to do holiness and righteousness. In chapter 6, verse 22, you are redeemed in order to live a blameless life, bearing fruit for holiness. In chapter 8 of Romans, verses 4 through 9, you are to live according to the Spirit according to the Spirit's lead and guidance in holiness in chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Not only are you called to live in holiness, but we and creation wait and groan for holiness. We long for holiness. 
<coughs> to be completely accomplished in us. In chapter 12, verse 1, you are to live a life of holy sacrifice to the Lord as your holy act of worship before him, which is pleasing and acceptable to God. In chapter 16, verse 16 of Romans, even our greetings for one another are to be holy. And I just went through one book. That was just Romans. Even your greetings are to be holy. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Even your greetings are to be holy. <laughs> All the guys in the room running around. <laughs> you are to greet one another with holiness and, and, and righteousness and sanctification. And the list goes on. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, you're called to be holy. And 1 Corinthians 1, 7, you're called to have an eternal perspective that would lead you to holiness. And 1 Corinthians 1, 30, God, Jesus made us holy and is making us holy. And 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 through 19, the church, the people of God are his holy temple. You are holy and set apart as a community of faith. In chapter 7, verse 14, our holiness even affects others. In chapter 13, one of the key marks of our holiness is love for one another and for others. In chapter 14, our worship is to be holy as in set apart and completely different than the Gentiles. And in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, what does he end with? Greet one another with a holy kiss. You are to be holy because in holiness is where God finds pleasure. So let's pause for a moment here and ask the question, how does one become holy? How does one pursue holiness? The first thing, of course, is the word of God, knowing and studying the word of God with all that you are, right? Remember that it is God's work and to will for his good pleasure in you. He does the work to make you holy, but you get to participate. You participate in the work that he's doing. So for, how do you do this? First, the word. Jesus says in John 17, 17, that his word is what makes us holy. In 2 Timothy 3, which we're going to read at the end of this, uh, at the end of our service today, he says that uh, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, training, correction, and righteousness so that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. This is to make you holy. You study the word of God in order to make you holy. I contend that a person who studies the word of God and their life does not change does not know Jesus. If you are reading the word of God and it makes no difference in the way that you live and it changes nothing, then you need to repent and believe in Jesus. And I say that from two measures. One, the word promises us that it will change us. The Bible promises us that it will change us. And two, personal experience. I know some brilliant men who have large segments of the Bible memorized, but it means nothing in their life. And it does them no good. And they know their Bible, and they know theology, and they can quote more than I can of deep theological thought, and they can argue for days. But they don't know Jesus because there's absolutely no love and no change in their life, Ever. And they rationalize away everything. And so when they are confronted by a believer, it makes them very unsettled. 
May we always be unsettling to those people. So, we see this, this idea that you, you become holy by the word. That's the first thing. Second thing it, that we see over and over in scripture again is the imitation of Jesus Christ. The imitation of Christ, living the way Jesus did, trying to be like Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, imitate your Christ-like leaders, right? Find leaders, consider their way of life. It says it this way, consider their way of life and imitate them. So consider your leaders, think about them. Don't just willy-nilly pick any leader. Think about the leaders that you can see. In our day and age, we got millions of them. They're all over the place. You can be close to them or you can be far away. By the way, just so you're aware, the closer you are to the leader, the better. Um, because then you'll see all the flaws too. And that's part of the best way to learn to imitate Christ. So uh, the closer you are, the better. But if you, uh, you've, got, you've got it wide open to you. I mean, YouTube has a million on every page, right? And there's bad leaders and good leaders and false leaders and, and great leaders. There are people who will correspond with you, who will write to you, who you can find online and write to, and they will literally write back and disciple you from hundreds of miles away. There are people who will do that. There are people who are not public figures and preachers and pulpits and leaders, but they are godly people who you will find. My recommendation is find an ugly old leader who's been around for a long time and has been faithful to follow Jesus and watch them consider their way of life and then imitate them as they imitate Christ. I, I will be happy for you to call me ugly and old. I'm not old, and I don't think I'm ugly, but I'm happy to take the moniker if that's what that means. So, so should you, by the way, just to be clear. Imitate your leaders as they imitate Christ. In 3 John verse 1 through 11, it says, imitate that which is good and not that, not that which is evil. And you know the difference. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, you know the difference. You know the difference between good and evil. It's not always obvious, but it always becomes obvious. You know the difference. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 7 through 9 says, Imitate your teachers. In 2 Timothy, it says, Follow the sound words of doctrine that were given to you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Christ is your example. Imitate Christ as his children. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is church life together, right? Church life is a group of people all pursuing Christ. All is this big mess, you know, this big blob of people just headed for Christ and being directed by Jesus. And so Paul says to the Corinthian church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. If you can't find anyone around you, grab hold of me. I'm chasing him as much as I can. Imitate me. Holiness is something that you do for the joy of God. And how do you do it? By reading the word and by imitating Jesus. 
Now, there are other practical things you can do to pursue holiness too. Things like fasting and making sure that you're having a regular disciplined time of prayer and study, making sure that you are around the community of faith. These are all activities and things that you can do in holiness. But the top two, the more general instructions that we see in Scripture, the broad general instructions are the Word of God and the life of Jesus. Those two things. Those two things. If you'll pursue those, you'll become holy. Now, let's go on. We see verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then most of your Bible should have a colon. Right? Most of your Bible should have a colon. Some of them have commas, but you should have a colon. And he's making a list. He's about to make a list. So the first one, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's one. Second one, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's the second one. Third one, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So it gives you a list of three very clear things that God is concerned about <coughs> that, that he wants you to pursue. First is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is anything that perverts sex. It's that clear. Marital intimacy is to be had between a husband and a wife. A husband and a wife. One husband, one wife. As marital intimacy is to be had that way. There is not a way to dance around that. There isn't. The culture wants us to. The world wants us to, but we can't. Intimacy is to be had between one woman, one man, a husband, a wife. They are to be married in the covenant of marriage, and it is an act of worship for them to be together in intimacy. If that gets perverted, if that bond of three, God, man, and woman, is it all expanded? Then we pervert the picture of the Godhead Himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God, three in one. God, Christ, and the church. Right? We, we pervert the very image of God Himself when we pervert sexuality. So He says, abstain from sexual immorality. Anything that deviates from what God has commanded. Now, brass tacks. If you are struggling with private immorality at any level, be it pornography or lustful thoughts or dangers in that area or even leaning in that direction, my encouragement is twofold. One, grab some brothers and sisters who can talk to you about it and walk you through it honestly who will love you, and who will take care of you. And it's going to be frightening, it's going to be uncomfortable, and you're going to feel miserable. You're going to feel bad about it. You should. If you don't feel bad about it, something's wrong. But grab some people to go through it with you. Contact them. If you have trouble with the internet, get covenant eyes, 
Get some brothers and sisters who will watch your back, who will ask you the very simple question, how's your eye gate? The gate that covers your eye. How's that going? Very simple. There's no judgment when you're talking to a believer who loves you. There's no judgment when you're talking to a believer who loves you. There's only a desire to pursue holiness together. And we all have struggles. Yours might look different than mine, but I have them too. And I need you as much as you need me. So make war on this. Do not let the culture in our nation win. The culture that says this isn't a big deal. And you can just move on. And why are you concerned about what people do in their bedroom anyway? I'm concerned about what people do in their bedroom because God's concerned about what people do in their bedroom. Sexual immorality is something that is wrong and bad and detrimental to society as a whole. So, first, abstain from sexual immorality. If you need help with that, please grab brothers and sisters in this church. If you can't find somebody that you trust to grab, grab me. I'll do it. No judgment. I know the weight of that sin. I know it. And we can kill it. So, second thing I would admonish you to do is to recognize that while sexual immorality is wicked and wrong, and Christians have no place in it. There is no place for sexual immorality in a Christian. Um, the world is filled with it. And you shouldn't be surprised that the world is filled with it. Because they think that their joy is in themselves. That's why they're all depressed. And so they're trying to find joy in, in their most expressive act of worship. We shouldn't be surprised. So abstain from that. Stay away from it. Second, the second thing he tells them, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So second is self-control. The first one is abstain from sexual immorality. The second one is self-control. Have self-control. Control, and what it literally says there is that everyone can hold their own vessel. Everyone can control their own vessel. As in, the, the body, the mind that you are in control over your passions. Your passions and your activities that, that they don't control you, they don't run you. That's literally what it says. That you control your vessel, you hold your own vessel. You are to be different from the world, controlling your passions, not like the Gentiles who are given over to their passions of lust, who just give in to it, not like them, not like the world around us, but rather that you are disciplined and self-controlled. So first, abstain from sexual immorality. Second, control yourself. Control yourself. You ought to have the ability to control your emotions. Now, that looks different. I just want to be clear. That looks different for every person. I know that looks different for every person because it looks different for every one of you. And for me, controlling your own emotions and passions, containing your own body might mean that you say no to things that overwhelm. 
It might mean that you say yes to things that overwhelm. To put yourself in the position where you learn to control yourself. It might mean that you are intentional about denying that, that self-made loneliness where you force yourself to be quiet and by yourself instead deny that and go be with a community. Or the reverse. It might be that you intentionally work on going to be by yourself and deal with the things that you struggle with and then come to the community. The community is always there. It's always one or the other. But it might look different. Learning to control yourself might look different for each person, but one thing is consistent and one thing is true, that the pursuit of holiness is an act of learning self-control. And it is done when you make the effort to discipline yourself. You are to be different from the world, not like the Gentiles who go do whatever they want. You're to be different to self-control. Verse 6, the, the third one here. So the first one, refrain from sexual immorality. Second, control yourself. Third, no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. God is concerned about what you do in the dark. He's concerned that you know how to control yourself and he's concerned that you abstain from sexual immorality. He's concerned for both of those. Why? Because it's his pleasure and will. Because it's for joy, for holiness. You'd be set apart and different. And because evidently, your holiness impacts other people. Your personal holiness and your personal abstaining from sexual immorality and controlling your own vessel impacts other people. You wrong your brothers when you do this. You wrong your brothers when you do this. One of the biggest lies the devil has ever told young men and women in our culture is that no one sees. Is that no one sees you. No one sees you, you're fine. This is done in private, nobody sees it. The problem is, everyone sees it. Everyone sees it. You can see when people are doing that. You can see it, everyone sees it. The truth is, if we will be transparent with the community of the church, the devil will lose his power. The devil will lose his power over it. Be different from the world. Your relationships to others are critical. And we're going to talk more about those relationships next week in the next instructions. But he warns you the motivation for this. The motivation for wronging your brother and not wanting to wrong your brother is the opposite of God's pleasure. It's God's frustration and wrath. Wronging your brother brings the Lord as an avenger. Verse 7. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. For whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Remember that the Lord is an avenger. And that he has called you for holiness and not for impurity. And that when you disregard sexual immorality, when you... When you 
when you decide to engage in sexual immorality or when you decide to defraud your brother, that's what's spoken of in that last portion, when you decide to defraud your brother in this sense, and when you decide that you are not going to control yourself, you're just going to give to the whims of your lusts and passions, which, by the way, that word lust and passion is used earlier in Scripture to refer to degrading passions of the flesh. Right? This is, this is the term, that these are degrading passions in particular. So when you give into those things, understand that you're not harming just man you're not just disregarding the instructions from some man you're disregarding what god tells you and back to the beginning if god is the supreme source of joy it's not that he's sitting there with a clipboard it's not like he's sitting there with a clipboard going you didn't get it right you didn't get it right you didn't get it right that's not what he's doing what he's doing is going i have joy for you unbounded joy and you piddle about with sex and drink. I have unbridled joy for you. And you waste your time with this stuff. It's not that he's keeping a checklist and going, you got to get everything perfect. No, he's telling you, pursue holiness because there's joy to be had. He is the chief end of all joy. He's the supreme Source of joy. So here at the end, when we read this, this phrase that you are not disregarding man, you're disregarding God. Don't, don't hear that as a, as a, like, you're going to get, he's coming. No, hear that as a, you are depriving yourself of the joy of God. In favor of what? In favor of what? Like be on, make a pros and cons list, for goodness sakes. Could you imagine making a pros and cons list when you're about to sin and you're thinking through it logically? Like, oh, well, I could do this. And here's the pros of it. Nothing. Here's the cons. I mean, we'll be honest. Here's the pros of it. Temporary fleeting pleasure for about five minutes and then sickness. And like this. Pros and cons list this thing, and you'll see like the joy of holiness is so much greater. You're not disregarding man, you're disregarding God. You're disregarding God. And that means you're throwing joy out the window. Mm. Oh Lord, may we never be people.